Hi there. This is Neil Satin, the host of Relationship Alive. The Relationship Alive podcast is my offering to you to support you in having the best possible relationship. So if you're finding it to be helpful, please consider a donation to help support the podcast. In order to do that, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And thank you so much for your help in ensuring that we can continue. And today's show is also sponsored in part by Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you choose from over 1,500 licensed therapists. Get matched with your perfect therapist who can put you on the path to a happier life and a thriving relationship. For a special offer for you, visit Talkspace.com slash alive. Also, many of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode require a lot of really great communication between you and your partner. If you're interested in learning how to communicate in relationships so that no matter what you're talking about, the good things or the challenging things, you can become more connected with your partner, then please consider downloading my free guide to my top three relationship communication secrets. To do that, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com relate, or you can text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Okay, I think that's everything. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. How do you take your relationship to a totally new level where you actually transform, where you get past the things that hold you back, that keep you from shining your brightest, and that keep you from supporting your partner in doing the same. We've talked a lot on this show about how to evolve into a relationship that creates deep safety and trust and respect so that you can be fully in the moment with your partner. And yet, even then, some of us feel like, well, maybe there's something more, or maybe there's, like, I'm disconnected from this place within me, and I'm not quite sure how to get there. I've heard about relationship as a vehicle for transformation, and I could really use some help doing the transforming and knowing what that process is like. Well, on today's show, we are going to dive deep into the black hole of transformation with Jet Saris, who is one of the co-authors, along with Marlena Lyons, of the book Undefended Love. This book will truly open your eyes as to what is possible, not only in partnership, but also in how you reveal to yourself the ways that you are holding yourself back from being centered in your essence and operating from there. And, and also how to bring that kind of clarity into your partnership and to see ways that you can stop defending yourself and instead be undefended, vulnerable, courageous, and alive. So with that, we will dive right in. I do want to let you know that we will have a detailed transcript and an action guide for this episode, which you can get by visiting neilsatin.com slash undefended. And you can always text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions to also get a link to this show guide and all the other show guides from Relationship Alive. Also, a moment ago, Jet taught me the namaste chant. And so at the end of this interview, she and I are going to sing that together for you. Just a little added bonus. I think that's all the business we have to cover, so let's dive right in. Jet Saris, so happy to have you here with me today on Relationship Alive. And thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. 
Looking forward to it. Great. And it's my pleasure. And just so you know, listening, this is a conversation that actually started a couple years ago um, because I knew very early on in the inception of this podcast that I was really hoping to have either Jet or Marlena here on the show to talk about undefended love. So uh, with a little patience and waiting for the timing to feel right, here we are. Um, I'm excited. And Jet, I'm, I'm wondering if we can start right out by talking about this concept of we're talking about undefended love, but what is defended love? Like what are, what is being defended and what are we defending ourselves from? Maybe that's a good place to dive in. Yeah. In fact, yes, it is. Uh, the reason we, um, titled the book undefended love is really because most people, while they're aware of defensive behaviors and actions like reactions, getting angry, um, withdrawing. Most people are aware that those are defensive, but unaware that our entire perspective is born out of a defense. For example, if our orientation or role or sense of self that we adopted as a child was to be uh, super competent, that itself is a defense against feeling not good enough. And so while we can catch ourselves in defensive behaviors or being triggered or reactive, we seldom know that we're going through each moment of every day oriented around protecting ourselves from an experience we had as children that we could not endure. And so I often point out that the, these roles that we play and ways of perspectives that we have taken on, they actually got us to this place in our lives. They helped us survive. But now if we don't relinquish those roles, self-concepts, worldviews, and emotional coping mechanisms, if we don't relinquish them, then uh, it's a little bit like an acorn husk. If it doesn't give way, the seed possibility for who we can be ourselves and in relationship will never be realized. So undefended, undefended love is the work of recognizing and dismantling those defense structures, which will then dismantle and, um, and, the uh, de defensive reactions and behaviors will no longer be necessary. And I love the way you did this introduction. It was very subtle, but I want to point it out to listeners. The introduction that you gave, Neil, is you very subtly wove in that the starting place is with ourselves. The starting place is not getting the other to be different. The starting place is that relationship and love call us to a profound inner transformation after which we can relate to others in an undefended or in a non-provisional way. So that's our starting point. So many places that we can go from there. I'm, I'm curious, well, actually, um, maybe a good place to go from here is a lot of people were asking me, well, tell, what can you tell me about undefended love? You know, they were like, what are you, you know, what are you reading now for, for your, your mm -hmm. upcoming interview? And I was like, all right, well, basically when you're growing up, things happen that, that lead you to form erroneous conclusions about yourself, which mm -hmm. you call the, the cracked identity. Mm -hmm. And it's this sense, and, and it, can, it can be distilled often down to simple statements like, I'm not lovable, or I'm not worthy, or I, I'm not valuable, or I'm not, I, um, I'm always wrong. Um, and those, I think those identities, they're not things that are there all the time for us, but from that come our personalities. And one, th one thing that I loved about what you, what you wrote about was how you, you show that the personality, so things like being a really generous person are mm -hmm. actually there to help us avoid feeling the pain of this underlying cracked identity. 
Exactly right. Yeah, the um, there there what you're speaking about here is there there are kind of two two main layers to our identities or self concepts or what we created in order to uh, manage our childhood. And the uh, the one, the deepest one, the one that is the most gnarly, are these self concepts that is deficient. And it's very interesting to me that. Um, the way these are born, I'll give you an example, is uh, let's say that, you know, your dad comes home from work, he's had a rough day at work, you're just really, you know, you're five years old, you're just excited to see him, and so you run up to him, and he uh, pushes you away, tells you to give him space, not now, and so here you're wide open, your arms are out, literally, you're reaching for the person you love the most in the world, and you experience kind of a, a physical punch. It feels somatic when he says, no, go away. And so then the child is left with a dilemma. How do I make my world make sense? And so what they do is they, they actually do a kind of translation and say, I must have been too much in that moment. And so they, that's the birth of a self-concept as deficient. I am too much. And then what they do is they create a compensation to manage themselves. Since I'm too much, I need to control, contain suppress, repress my natural emotions, exuberance, actions. And so now we're beginning to build this um, self-concept of being restrained. That's the compensation. But that's built on top of I'm too much. And so we do that basically. This is the most important part for me. We create that in order to maintain our relationship, like this child in the example with his father. He wants to stay in relationship with his father. So in order to not make the father wrong for his impatience and anger, the child makes himself wrong and says, you know, I'm too much. And so you see the impulse is to maintain the relationship. But the way we maintain that psychologically produces a self-concept that we just build on over and over and over again. And maybe later in the show, we'll talk about um, how we do that in partnership, how we maintain that uh, that entire mistake. Hmm. Yeah. And with that, uh, I thought another great example that you offer in the book is just because like you might be listening and thinking, well, I'm not I'm not shut down. Like I'm a really generous, giving person full of exuberance. So this probably doesn't apply to me. So right. what would you say to that to that person? Well, um, there I think there is um, a case study in this book. I'm not sure if it's this one or the next one, but um, where a minister uh, saw himself as uh, his self-concept was that he was generous and probably everybody he knew would consider him to be generous and uh, except his wife actually and um, and so I said uh, well tell me what happens with your wife if your gener generosity isn't appreciated and he said well actually um, I get angry with her and I withdraw and I said ah well essential generosity has no strings attached. So because you are committed and attached to being seen as a generous person, that's where we have the clue that that is something you developed and that you are reinforcing because if it doesn't get reinforced from your wife, you actually separate, you sever the relationship, you punish her or you withdraw in some feelings of reactive hurt. And so that's where we begin to see that we're not actually working purely with essential generosity here. But I wanna to hasten to mention that we cannot develop a concept of generosity unless we have that essential quality. Hmm. And so the truth is, 
he does have that essential quality, and it's apparent if you sit with him for a number of minutes, you can see that he has that essential quality. But especially with his wife, it also has become a compensatory identity. And that has become an obstacle in their relationship because he is more focused on being seen as generous than making authentic contact in a given moment. Mm. Yeah. And and I, I just want to mention one more thing about this just coming to me. I'm sorry sure. to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Is, is that um, the other thing about this is that when he is giving to his wife and she receives that, it's actually not enough. So there is a, there's a little backside here. It's a nuance, but he is more attached to a constant stream of validation. And if that stream is broken, then we begin to see the cracked identity underneath that compensation. Jet, I want to dive more deeply into this and especially the compensatory identity. But before we do, I need to take a quick break to mention our sponsor, Talkspace.com. So since they've been supporting the podcast, I've been giving their service a try. And just to be clear, I'm actually paying for it. They didn't give it to me for free. And I'm finding it to be a really helpful way to get some extra support from a trained professional, especially this time of year during the holidays. They're a little different than traditional therapy, so I send messages to my Talkspace therapist as often as I want throughout the day, and then they get back to me once per day with a plan that I'm on. There are other plans, too, where they can respond even more frequently than that. So Talkspace is currently offering $30 off your first month with them if you visit Talkspace.com alive and use the coupon code alive. So that gives you $30 off your first month of online therapy. So thank you, Talkspace, for your support of the podcast and for your generous offer for our listeners. Okay, let's pick up where we left off. Can you chat a little about how that compensatory identity, so you'd think, okay, I'm great. Like, I, you know, I suffered for, with under my parents. I became... Like I learned how to hold myself back a little bit or I learned how to, to be really generous. But at the same time, these compensatory strategies, they actually perpetuate that underlying belief as well. That is so, that's exactly right. And it's, it's, it's very rarely understood that if our emotional survival strategy is to seek approval, Every time we seek approval, we reinforce our deficient identity as not good enough or not smart enough or not generous enough. So it's like we're, we're um, putting coats and coats of paint on that deficient identity. And we keep, it's a little bit like an addiction. We keep having to fill that hole, H-O-L-E, of of uh, deficit. I'm not good enough. So I need to constantly hear from you and everyone around you that in fact I am. And so it actually, it actually does the opposite. The approval just gets us by for that moment, mm. but it never is going to fill that hole. Yeah. And so let's make the leap, at least in this moment, that the way that we typically find ourselves in relationship is driven by some aspect of this personality, the, the compensatory strategy. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, a good question, and if we take this into um, a little bit more concrete example, is if you ask yourself, what experience am I trying to get in this moment with my partner? Or what experience am I trying to avoid in this moment with my partner? Then you will begin to see the workings of the compensatory and the cracked identity because authentic and essential interactions are never trying to get something and they're never trying to avoid something. So, yeah, so now I'm 
wondering, and you're probably wondering if you're listening, where where we're headed with all of this. Because, all right, great, you've got <laughs> you've got this. I have these cracks in my identity, and then I my personality came up, and there are things about it that are great, and maybe there are things about it that are not so great. If I'm going to be uh, delaminating all of these coats of paint that Jet was just talking about. Where do I get with that? What 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 possibilities actually open up for me if I'm willing to go through this process? Well, um, the uh, the the one piece is that we through this process we develop ourselves into a much larger. Um, we, we become much larger. And um, I often use this uh, example of if you picture a glass of water next to a large, pristine, blue mountain lake, and uh, where we start this journey really is that glass of water. And so if you picture putting maybe a teaspoon of salt into that glass of water and drinking it up, you'll be repulsed. But that same teaspoon of water into that blue mountain lake that water is just going to be as refreshing as it always was. And so life delivers our, us, and, and also, of course, relationship on a daily basis, things that don't taste good. And if we're that glass of water, we're going to constantly be saying no to everything that comes toward us that we believe um, is going to produce um, discomfort and displeasure. But as we become that large, blue, pristine mountain lake of our beings, all the things that come to us, they become absorbed and refreshed. And we actually become a source of nourishment and refreshment to everyone around us. You can see this a little bit with um, people who have gone through cancer a number of times. The first time they get the diagnosis, they panic, um, usually reach for whatever treatment is offered and go into kind of a trance state and just try to survive. The second time, well, they have their medical team together. They know what worked and didn't work. Um, they move a lot more slowly, generally speaking, and they have the ability to recognize that life is continuing and this... Um, recurrence has also come into their lives, but they have much more stamina and capacity to show up for what's happening. And the third time they'll come into my office and they say, well, there's been a third recurrence and um, I feel capable of taking the necessary steps. And I also want to talk about what's happening uh, currently in my marriage. And so the capacity to be with what life offers becomes larger and larger. We're less likely to um, feel resentment. We're less likely to feel um, collapse. We're less likely to feel emotionally defensive or reactive. We have, we develop a general yes to everything because we are so large and have already experienced our capacity to show up for life that we're no longer afraid of life as we are uh, when we begin this journey. So as you peel back these layers, you get to reveal uh, essential qualities about yourself that, that are larger and deeper and, and more, more constant, more resilient. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what and is the that capacity... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that you, 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 everyone knows what it feels like to have these essential qualities bubbling up in them. And I often use the example, the first time you fell in love. And if you can, if you can remember that the first time you fell in love, you know, a lot of us will focus on what the other person was like. But if you focus for a moment on what you felt like, that experience of yourself when you first fell in love, that openness, that joy, that capacity, that willingness, that um, love, and all of that, that's actually the destination of this journey. When we fall in love, we glimpse 
that possibility for who we can be with another and within ourselves. We glimpse that possibility. And then the hard work of realizing that possibility begins. And so in short form, the answer to your question is who you were when you first fell in love, the experience you had of yourself, that's actually the destination of this journey. Mm, that would make sense. And it's making sense to me on this deep level of, right, of course, I've been summoned by this vision of potential. Mm-hmm. And and then I think often couples find themselves, you know, heeding the call, <laughs> being summoned, and then a year or two or ten later totally forgetting what what called them into that relationship to begin with right what so what happens when um when we get stuck and as i did mention in the intro um which you heard jet a lot of what we've talked about on the show has been about creating uh, creating safety in relationships so that people really um, feel freedom to be vulnerable, to be courageous. And yet I couldn't help but notice that um, further along in your book, you talk about uh, react and and basically identifying all of these qualities of a safe container and mm-hmm. talking about how maybe those are great to get you to one place, but then you have to find ways to shed those qualities. Yeah, you need a ratio of what I call um, closeness and intimacy. The closeness is the safe container you're talking about, that holding environment where you feel like you can rest in the relationship. And the intimacy really is that transformative edge So the um, hallmarks of a close relationship are things like um, reciprocity and the capacity to make and keep agreements. And um, those very same things that are capacities in a healthy close relationship can also uh, prevent intimacy. So for example, um, yes, while it is wonderful to have a relationship where both of you are doing the work. If you maintain, I will, if you will, I'm working with a couple right now who are very mired in, I will, if you will. And uh, that is not going to move forward. We actually have to have a fidelity to our own unfolding and, and assuming there's nothing violent or um, damaging going on in the relationship, we have to be willing to continue to unfold and reveal and tell uh, what, tell the truth about what we're experiencing and explore, we have to be willing to do that even if our partner is not willing to do that. Otherwise, there is uh, what creeps in is an unhealthy dependency where we are requiring the other person to be a certain way in order for us to feel safe. And technically speaking, we don't really need another person to feel, to be a certain way in order for us to feel safe. Safety is found in that large lake of our being or the ocean of our being. It is not found in a temporary ability to manipulate or coerce our partner to show up in a particular way. So we need a balance. We do need um, someone who is not chronically going to be attacking us But we also need the ability when we experience someone, my partner being critical, we have to have the ability to say, okay, what is true about the criticism that you are um, telling me about instead of, no, I'm not that way. What's true about that? And also, in the presence of your criticism, what essential quality or aspect of being do I lose access to? And clearly that would be curiosity. So in order to have a fidelity to our own unfolding, we have to say, okay, in this moment, in the face of your criticism, I've lost access to my essential curiosity. And so now what I want to do is I want to try to access that curiosity and apply it to your criticism. 
And then you'll notice that, that um, the whole relationship moment, the tension will soften because you're willing to listen to what your partner has said, even if your partner has said it in a way that is not skillful. How do you avoid then this becoming totally one-sided in a relationship where one person is willing to, to do the work and where the other will happily dish out criticisms and ways of trying to control the, their partner to make life easy for themselves? Well, the, the truth is you don't avoid that. You don't avoid anything in this approach. And what you do is you establish this fidelity to your own unfolding, and that's primary. And then what actually happens is one of two things. You outgrow your partner, and that becomes very evident, and then the question is, you know, of whether I should leave or not really becomes moot, becomes obvious. Or your partner sees who you're becoming and jumps on board. And I can tell you that happens more than the, the, the latter happens more than the former. The experience they have of your openness, your um, clarity, your uh, kindness, your skillful means, they begin to um, say, you know, I, I want to be more like that. I want to find that in myself. I want to join with you in this enterprise that you have initiated and I can tell you when that happens, often the turn is quite uh, dramatic and, uh, and then you have established a new chapter or new ground between you, one based in the shared value of uh, being allies, intimate allies in this journey. But it is true that there are those who resist and defend and say, you know, I don't want to do this work. And then the person who is doing the work, they become stronger, clearer, and then they have a choice. Do I want to stay with you and accept you 100% as you are? And then, of course, they also have developed the ability to set boundaries and, and the rest of that. Um, or um, is this really no longer, has this taken us where we could go together? And do I want to actually step outside of this relationship now and um, move forward on my own. And that, that's a scary place for people. But it's a lot scarier not to take the journey because if you don't take the journey, that uh, seed, acorn of you, will wither and die. So journey or death the choice is up to you <laughs> <laughs> and guess what we all die anyway we all die. <laughs> well it's a series of deaths of course this is since it's a totally transformational um process we get very good at dying psychologically and emotionally speaking over and over again that's we become part of the cycle of life and that's why I think we all long for intimacy so much because it's so fresh, it's so new, it's so exciting. There's no longer been there, done that. Everything becomes sacred. And that's when I think life really becomes everything that we've read about. So what does the process look like? And and I, I think this would be good to... to complete our overview of what mm -hmm. what someone's going to go through. And then maybe we can offer some actual beginning steps for you listening so that you can get a sense of how to how to take this journey. Um, so, yeah. yeah, can I can I blend those two together, please? Yeah, I, I, the first step, it's just non-negotiable. The first step is that your starting point is whatever is happening is about me not about my partner. And I have to tell you that that can be an easy step for some and a very, very large leap for others. For a period of time, at least as an exploration, take on the task that this is about you and not about them. And later on, when you have done that thoroughly, you can examine what part is also about them but initially, you cannot do that. I ask my couples to 
uh, go on a detox diet of not critiquing, complaining, evaluating, noticing, psychoanalyzing their partner. When you stop, even doing this verbally or in your mind, when you stop focusing your attention on your partner, you're left with having to explore, which is difficult, what is actually going on for you. So the first task is this is about me, not about you. The second one is to stop critiquing, stop that outward flow, and that is very important. The next task is to recognize that there's more to you in that moment than you think. So whatever you think is going on, it, there's a lot more going on than that. And so your work is to inquire into the experience you're trying to get in that moment and the experience you're trying to avoid in that moment. Once you do that, you will, it will bring you naturally down into whatever the contraction is that is keeping the self-concept in place. So I'll use an example. So if, uh, if, if you come in, oh, actually, can I use you as an example? Sure, let's go for okay. it. <laughs> Good. Um, can you can you give me an example of a reaction that you that is uh, familiar to you? You have it with your wife, um, and it's it happens, you know, uh, periodically, mm. or every day. <laughs> <laughs> Because a lot of these reactions, you know, they happen every day. Right. Well, this almost never happens, but. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, sure. Let's go with. Um, I'm I'm working and I'm I'm working a lot and and I get a complaint from her that that I'm working too much and I'm I haven't prioritized uh, I haven't prioritized our connection enough. Okay. Let's say in that day, even. Yes. And so, and let's say in that moment, you're not in your most conscious and spacious self, which who would probably say, oh, you know, I, I hear that you are wanting more time with me. Yes. Right? So in our most conscious self, that's what we would say. But let's say that you're actually working really hard and you're trying to get somewhere, accomplish something. And so this interruption actually threatens what you're trying to accomplish. So what do you, what's the first thing you experience? What's the reactive experience when she interrupts you with her complaint? Uh, that she doesn't value what I'm doing. Right. And how is that familiar for you? Uh, well, um, it's a pattern that certainly came up in other relationships that I had before. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think it connects me in this moment. I'm, I'm seeing my parents very clearly and thinking about how I had to justify my choices to them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Things mm -hmm. that were interesting to me that I wanted to pursue that, um, that they didn't necessarily approve of. Mm -hmm. So in those moments, I would feel like they didn't value what I was doing. I had to do something different to get their approval. Right. So in that moment when she has that complaint, it brings you back to an old area of sensitivity that who you are and the choices you make are not valuable. So in that moment... You lose access to your intrinsic value, which is your essential trait, and you experience the part of you that wants to make his own choices, but also his choices in some way threaten the stream of goodwill and approval from the other, whoever that is, parents or your wife. And so in that moment, if you don't become reactive and push against her, 
push against her complaint, you don't value me with your own complaint. That's how we separate from each other. If you were to use her complaint as an invitation to drop back in your history to the young boy who had passions and desires that were disapproved of, what vulnerable experience would you have there? What, 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 is, what was the vulnerable experience of that young boy? Uh, he felt uh, alone mm-hmm. um, and, and self-doubt comes up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, like maybe I, yeah, a lot of uncertainty and, and confusion almost. Like if I can't, I guess I can't trust myself. Yeah. So the self-doubt comes up in order for you to maintain the relationship with your parents or your wife. But the vulnerable feeling that you're talking about is you feel lonely. You feel like they severed the relationship with you in that moment. You lost access to the common ground you once shared. And you also lost access to the feeling of passion that you were engaged with when you were in your own little world alone. Mm. And so that's a moment of trauma. And if we can use your wife's complaint to bring you back to that moment of trauma and to just simply feel it, what you will find is There'll be a little unwinding, the contraction will soften, and there'll be more space to actually experience the real message that your wife is conveying, which is, I miss you. It would be great if she could say that, but it's equally important that she can't because you need to develop the ability to stay in contact with yourself without defending against what she says and to stay in contact with yourself. And also it will bring you into deeper contact with her because you say, you know, I hear what you're really saying is you miss me. And that is actually what I wanted in the beginning. And so Uh, then the two of you can be allies. You know, I hear that you miss me, and actually now that you're saying that, you've kind of jogged me out of this addiction to my work, and um, let me just finish this up and let's spend some time together. Or you'll say, I miss you too, but this is a priority for our family, and so can we kind of support me around completing this project And then let's plan some extended time together so that we make sure that we're also nourishing the well of our relationship. So then you become resourced. How helpful is it to, when when going through that inquiry, um, to let my partner know that that's like to to let them know what I'm going through or what I'm what I'm experiencing, what I'm seeing. well, if, if you have the uh, emotional strength and the, you know, the emotional strength to reveal your process and there is an, an, a welcoming environment to do that, I would say do that. If it feels too risky, then I suggest that, you know, clients say to their partner, listen, I, something's just come up for me. I just feel triggered in this moment. It's not about you. I'm going to spend the next hour or two diving into that. And can we meet up at three o'clock so that I can reveal that to you and we can talk about it? It is very important to let your partner know that you're in process. And if you don't have the strength to, to reveal that process or that process needs some incubation time, some protected space, that you maintain the relationship with the promise to do your work and 
come back into discussion about what just transpired. That is very important. And and just to be clear, the process of diving in, there wasn't there wasn't some magical mantra around um, the experience that I was having. It's more about simply being with that experience to get to the other side. Yes, it's it's um, well said. First of all, and I just want to also appreciate, I mean, how many, uh, just to, this is a note to the listeners, how many podcasters, you know, who are willing to enter, um, <laughs> enter the process personally. So, uh, a big thank you for that. Um, Thanks. you know, it, it's, it, it really, um, it is about freshly meeting each experience with the knowledge of the patterns, but the willingness to let this step outside of those patterns. And so there is a mix. You have a knowledge of familiar patterns, which you were able to quickly identify. And that's very important because patterns are always a result of the compensatory and cracked identity. But there's also the willingness to have a completely fresh insight and a completely new experience of that moment where you lay down the pattern and maybe for the first time come in to contact with the original heart of the moment when you were disproved of or um, not appreciated or rejected. So what what are some ways that 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 could manifest so that if, you know, if you're going through this at home, you're probably wondering like, all right, what could that look like for me if I'm willing to just be there? It sounds scary. I have to say, as I was reading your book, I was yeah. feeling mixes of elation, like, wow, this this is amazing. And and I felt very viscerally the fear coming up of, you know, my parts responding to, ooh, that's gonna be scary when you do that, or that that's yeah. that could be frightening when you know, you just rest in that with Chloe. Chloe's my wife. Mm. Um so it's yeah, it brings up a lot, and you you call it the black hole, and I'm sure there's some good reason behind that. <laughs> yeah, well, the um, the black hole is where we really drop into that core sensitivity, and it feels very uncomfortable, and it feels uncomfortable to the compensatory identity, which has just failed at its mission to keep you out of that discomfort. That's the whole idea of the compensation is for you to actually maintain control, feel safe, and uh, feel comfortable. And so when you drop into these core sensitivities, most of us scramble quickly to get out of them. You know, that's okay too. What happens is, in, in my experience, we don't drop into... Um, the black hole in a way that is um, annihilating. It's a little bit more like a snake shedding its skin. When we're ready to drop into the black hole and reveal that peace that's needing our attention and healing, there really already is a su substantial experience of ourselves ready to pick that, pick something up to essence rises up to carry the day. And so we're not going to drop into the hole and go into a self-destruct. It will absolutely feel uncomfortable and it feels uncomfortable every single time. But what happens is we develop the capacity of making that transition and the rewards on the other side are, um, they're, they're so positively reinforcing because we get to have that experience of ourselves like when we first fell in love. And so uh, it is something that happens over time. It's very helpful if you have a therapist or, or spiritual guide or close friend to, uh, to do this work with because it is helpful to have a kind and gentle holding environment. But over time, you just begin to look for the opportunities to fall into that place and recover 
the sense of self as infinitely loving, open, generous, kind. And so um, this work really uh, builds on itself. Yeah, you talk about the, I think you call it the flip, where your, your fear of not doing the work outweighs the fear of facing into those experiences that you were initially trying to avoid. Yeah, it's a, I call it the flip. Uh, other traditions call it the uh, spiritual warrior. You develop the, um, the commitment to your own, old un, your own unfolding, and you place that over these passing discomforts. And that uh, when you that, at that moment you have shifted your center of gravity away from a protective, controlling, predictable sense of self and life into um, a, a more fluid, uh, more surprising, definitely more spontaneous and exciting way to be in life. It's a little bit like moving from the land, which is predictable. We walk on land, it's predictable, and jumping into water where there are all kinds of new and interesting and exciting but also scary movements that occur. You're not in control anymore. Yeah, uh, Chloe often, I've heard her recount this story of snorkeling in Bali. I think it was Bali. And being right at the edge of this drop-off from, like, it went from, I think, the coral reef down into, like, who knows how many thousands of feet. And just mm. just seeing the shadows lurking, like, just below the light. And, <laughs> and how terrifying that was. That's um, a wonderful experience. And I'll often use snorkeling as, an, you know, because most of us, when we're based in our self-concepts we're like looking at the surface of the water and this work you're putting on some gear and you're dropping below the surface and there's an entirely new magical beautiful world and so at some point we long to we long for our depths and for that magic and mystery and largeness and relationship definitely is the sacred path to that experience i have to say it was kind of funny to me thinking just now about how so much of our time can be spent trying to avoid conflict mm -hmm. and you know like in that situation that I described with Chloe you know we would probably make some agreements that would be around like okay on you know on Mondays I only work until 6 p.m. you know that sort of thing mm -hmm. to avoid coming across that that circumstance and what I hear you saying is, well, that could be great. And you get this magnificent opportunity by being in the discomfort of kind of failing or where yeah. your, your compensatory strategies, the things that initially brought you together with that person because you complemented each other so well, where they start to fall apart. Yeah, beautifully said. Basically, um, my way of saying that is if you can make an agreement and keep the agreement, uh, by all means, go ahead and do that. When you make agreements and you can't keep them, then you know that you have created false ground between you and that there is something deeper that's actually um, needing to be seen and addressed and so when the agreements fall apart, which they will, if it's a repetitive, deep issue, then you want to ask yourself, what does the agreement protect you from experiencing? And usually that will be, as you said earlier, discord. It protects you from experiencing that you're having a different experience than the other. And um, we want to protect ourselves from that. Are there core agreements that you think are important in relationship? Um, I think uh, I encourage all couples to address that question more kind of uh, maybe in terms of core values, which uh, might cover the same area. So, you know, some relationships have a core value of telling the truth as we know it, um, uh, creating a receptive environment for the truth, uh, becoming conscious of underlying motivations and behaviors. And um, so it, 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 it depends. I, the only thing I 
um, it, it should be born of the specific couple, not kind of universal, I think, core um, agreements, but, um, but doing the work of forging those core values and agreements is probably as or more important than what you come up with on your list. Hmm. Saying this is how I want to be in life with you, and can we can we agree to that? And 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 if that seems to change, can we speak about what's changing? And it makes me curious to know, like those situations where an agreement is broken, um, and that could be something like I said I was going to stop working at five and. It turns out I planned an interview for six, or, <laughs> you know, or it could be something more that feels bigger, like a, a betrayal, a, an emotional infidelity, an affair, uh, something, you know, I, I gambled all our money away, like those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you apply? Because I, what I heard you saying earlier is to help someone realize, well, this isn't this isn't about the other person. This is about me. Mm-hmm. And how do you merge that in a situation where there's maybe some shock or trauma going on from an agreement having been violated? Well, um, I'll be meeting with a couple tomorrow where um, it's a man and a woman, and the man has um, apparently gambled away uh, their life savings. And she feels deeply betrayed by that. And, um, but uh, I have to say that her starting point in asking for this session is that she said, I recognize that I contributed to the outcome I'm experiencing. I did not take an active role in finances because I was afraid. I knew all along that uh, he had tendencies around gambling and I didn't want to, I didn't want to look at them. We have two children. I didn't want that as another issue to have to deal with. And so right off the, right out of the gate, she's recognizing that this has to do with her. It doesn't mean she doesn't feel betrayed because she has a pattern. As you talked about earlier, her father also gambled. And so it, the narrative is very personal for her, but her starting point is one of um, uh, taking personal responsibility for what occurred and wanting to explore what occurred instead of just making him into a rotten, horrible human being. And so that's the, that's the rigor of this. And that can be very hard when you talk about gambling away one's life savings. It can be very hard when you talk about having an affair, these are the areas that um, hit us the most deeply in our psyches and touch into the deepest of our sensitivities and traumas. And they're the ones that um, really provide generally the most uh, transformation because they are touching so deeply. So so again, the content of uh, what's occurring is uh, not as important as the commitment and the um, the fidelity to unpacking. I love your phrase, delaminating. I'll have to use that. You know, delaminating these places that we have become hardened and separate from life. So now I'm listening to us, and I'm driving in our car, in my car, and I'm thinking about this conversation. That's you know touching down into the core, my essence, and I know it's there. What can I do in this moment to, to take a step in that direction of getting clear on where my work lies and, and also maybe how to, well, I understand you're saying jet that it's not required, but how might I invite my partner into that with me? Well, um, I think the best invitation is by example. And so the best, the strongest invitation is this is the way I want to approach what has just transpired between us. I want to look at how I became a part of this narrative with you 
and how it's familiar in my own life so that I can be more awake and conscious and resourced when things like this occur and so that we together can create a digestive system that can digest what life brings to us. And so um, I think that's going to answer your second question. The first question is not quite so clear if, uh, if you've just experienced a betrayal and you've just found out about that, the first thing you're going to experience is shock. And so uh, when we experience shock, that is something has come into our field that feels larger than what we can handle. And so the first thing we need to do is not scramble and to actually do the opposite, which is very hard to do, which is stop and rest and wait until our warm animal body calms down and we can walk, we can meditate, we can bathe in warm water, whatever helps us calm our animal body, which always is the one that bears the burden of these shocks. And when we begin to feel like we can, we're coming out of the shock, then we begin by slowly wondering, what does this situation have to do with me? How is it familiar? And we begin to apply that essential curiosity and interest to what has transpired and recognize that the content of our lives is there to grow the context of our lives. The, our being, our openness, our resourcefulness, our genius, our capacity to love and care for ourselves and each other. The more we recognize that the, the content is there to rub us in a way, create a friction, to enlarge that context, the more likely we are to use what happens between us, what arises within us, to actually do the work that I'm describing in Undefended Love. And one quick addendum question to that. How do I stop from victimizing myself? So I don't want to... I want to inquire. I don't want to blame myself. And we don't want to blame anyone. Yeah. You know, because this isn't actually a problem. This is the way transformation occurs. The only way we can see what we can't see is by bumping into it and suffering the discomfort of it. <laughs> and so we can't, uh, we don't want to become a victim. We don't want to identify as a victim. We don't want to victimize others we want to join together and you know it's all hands on deck and do what's necessary to uh, wake up and to use the weather of our lives that's what i'm calling the content the weather of our lives to see that which the weather is happening in so if I have a feeling, I don't have to become anger. I'm just feeling angry. It's something that is occurring within me. I don't have to, if I have a thought, this isn't right. That's just the thought. That thought is occurring within me, and there are going to be 60,000, according to Stanford, additional thoughts before the end of the day is up. And so we become larger than these passing inconveniences or moments of disruption and confusion. And then you get to experience yourself as bigger than all of those things. Yes. And more resilient and more skillful. And more able to show up for love with your partner. Exactly. Well, all those things is love, really. We, we become love instead of uh, being a consumer of love. Mm. Yeah, then you're, you embody it. In, in what you do. And I, we're not going to have a chance to talk about it today, but I loved your discussion of needs versus desire versus wants versus desires and, and how we progress 
through that to get to a place where we're actually good with how life is, which doesn't mean we don't desire things, right? but, but we welcome it. Exactly. The big yes that you mentioned earlier in our conversation. That's right. Well, Jet Saris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. I could talk to you for another hour, I'm sure, but your tree crew showed up. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, I'm just so delighted to have you here. Jet is, as we mentioned, the author of the co-author of Undefended Love, along with her partner Marlena Lyons. And um, you can get links to her websites through the show guide for this episode. Again, you can visit neilsatin.com slash undefended or text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Um, Jed, is there anything else currently going on in your in your life or your world that you'd like to tell people about or if they want to find out more about you, where should they go? Um, oh, yeah. My, my website is uh, com, And I just published a new book this year, which I'm very excited about, Hidden Blessings, Midlife Crisis as a Spiritual Awakening, that has um, won a couple of awards already. And for those in midlife uh, over the age of 40, that might be something, if you like this approach, basically it's an undefended approach to the midlife passage, which um, I believe is arguably the most transformative passage of one's lifetime. So um, do take a look at that if this approach is of interest to you. Well, I definitely will. And I encourage you mm-hmm. listening to do the same. And thank you so much for your, for your time and wisdom today. And I look forward to speaking again at some point. Thank you so much. I appreciate you and the work you're doing. Thank you. And now the moment that you've been waiting for, Jet and I are going to sing at her suggestion the Namaste chant, which she taught me just before this interview started. So I hope you enjoy. Namaste, namaste, namaste. Namaste, the God in me reveres the God in you. Namaste, 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 namaste. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.